Good morning. My name is Maria. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi. Hi. Um, I want to thank uh, Bonnie, first of all, for asking me to be here and to participate in my own recovery. I was really honored and surprised and um, just blown away when I got the call. And thank you so much. Um, I want to thank Mary for um, picking me up and and taking care of me last night. And... um, and all of you for um, allowing me to be here. And I'd really like to thank Robert for an amazing talk. I came into the program on the 13th of April, 1985, and I do believe on that day God saved my life. Um, And I hope I remain forever grateful. I I, I don't take this program for granted because I know how easy it would be for me to go back out there. I came here and I was thinking, this, I think this is going to be the first time, Mary said, the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon, and I thought, I think this is going to be the first time I'm ever going to go anywhere where I don't know anybody in the room. <laughs> and I, you know, which is kind of, you know, exciting on one hand, and on the other hand, you know, that shows how close the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon really is and what a family it is. And I love the idea that Al-Anon has given me a family. Um, because I don't have um, family members in recovery. I've had them in and out. I think I have one cousin who may still go to AA. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, um, and then I walked in. first person I saw was James, and I was like, oh, James is here. Okay, I know one person. And then my friends Jim and Virginia came walking up to me. They drove all the way from Waco um, when leaving their daughter, um, who's in the hospital, and just to come here for a few hours, just to be supportive and loving. That's, that's family. And I'm so grateful, grateful to them. They were like my angels showing up. Um, my home group is the uh, stepped-up group in, the West che- uh, in Westchester, California. It's right by the LAX airport. So if you're ever, um, there you are. If you're ever um, flying into L.A. on a Thursday, Thursday night, 8 o'clock, um, call LA Central Office and we'll make sure we get somebody out there to pick you up. It's a great meeting. It's a step study meeting. And um, <clears throat> once a month we, have, we celebrate Alan on birthdays and they do it Texas style because the founder of our meeting, Vinoy, she brought the style of Texas to LA, um, which doesn't seem like Vinoy at all. And, um, and um, so once a month, we have um, the sponsors get up and talk about the sponsees, and then the sponsees get up and tell the real story. And, um, and the whole night is, is devoted to birthday night. And I think we had over 400. We donate a, a, a $1 for every candle on our cakes to, um, to central office. And I think last year we donated over $400. Um, that's 400, over 400 years of recovery in that meeting. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool meeting started 17 years ago, and um, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, anyway, I, um, my sponsor, her name is um, Dottie G. She lives in Wiley, Texas, and um, so I, I have a big affinity for Texas, and I always love being here, especially for the barbecue and the brisket. And um, anyway, I, um, I grew up, my, my story is very different from Robert, and yet uh, he really touched me because it really is true that our hearts are, are the same. I, I was a preteen sponsor, actually, and um, most of the kids that came to my preteen group were brought in by bus 
from a home because they had been taken out of their homes because most of them had tried killing themselves before the age of nine. Um, so to hear the love and recovery that he has is just really touching for me because, um, you know, I grew up, my formative years, I had a sponsor, in my formative years in the program, I had a sponsor who um, said, I can't, I can't understand why people who would get this miraculous spiritual fellowship would rob their children of giving them the same thing by not taking them to Alateen. And that's the way I was raised in this program. And so... I was so um, I was so excited when we got in the elevator yesterday. Judy and I came, went up to the to my room to check in, and, and uh, all the Alateens got off on my floor. And I thought, yeah, I'm in with the in crowd, <laughs> so I won't get any sleep. But I'm in with the in crowd, <laughs> and they're looking at me, going, "Who's the old lady across the hall?" I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, I um, I grew up in L.A. Um, I, uh, I had, um, um, financially and, um, otherwise I didn't long for anything in my life. I grew up in a very privileged, um, existence. Um, when I was six years old, um, my father, um, hit it big in his, in his industries and show business and, and we moved from the San Fernando Valley to Beverly Hills, and they would go out to the factory all the time, which was a club that Andy Warhol started, and, you know, it was the late 60s, and so the hippies had already worn the clothes hippie style, and now the older people were wearing it kind of older people style, you know, ba ba da 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 you know, and doing the whole um, 60s, hey, groovy, you know, turn in, turn on, you know, lay down, get up, I don't know, but they had, you know... <laughs> They had the whole Peace Brother thing going on, and um, they were riding motorcycles with Steve McQueen, and everything was really cool, and everything was really exciting, and we did a lot of exciting stuff. And um, my life was revolved around the bar in our home. Um, My parents, when they moved to that house, the first thing they did was build a huge bar (coughs) that actually was, I mean, it was gigantic, and it looked, it was beautiful, beautiful carved wooden bar and they went to Europe and they got um, pub mirrors to hang behind the bar and I didn't know till I got in this program that alcoholics like to watch themselves drink and that's why they have <laughs> on how do I look that sip um, and the Alanons are sitting there and how do I feel about how he looks in that sip but um, anyway, so life revolved around the bar, and there was not, you know, anything, no big uh, drama or violence or anything like that. My parents are still married to this day. They've been married um, over 50 years, I think, yeah. And um, so um, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, but there were moods in my house, and there was kind of just, when I came home from school, I wasn't quite sure what my mom's mood was going to be, and it was a little, you know, it was still early. It was still early in the progression of the disease, if they have the disease. I can't say they have the disease because they don't say they have the disease. So it's really none of my beeswax. And so um, anyway, I, but I noticed that I had a lot of 
the, the isms, the defects of character um, that we talk about here. Um, I mean, I didn't notice it then, obviously. I was a child, and everything is, you know, in hindsight. Um, I think Mary was referring to my love for Alcoholics Anonymous because we were talking about the AA um, International be coming here, and I'm so excited about that because I love international conventions. And to see all those AAs and Al-Anons taking over a city is the most awesome feeling in the world. And when we found out it was going to be in San Antonio, um, our group was saying, you know, let's go early and scout it out and decide what hotel we want to stay. And, you know, we're just so excited to come here. So it was a treat to get invited here to, to start off with. But anyway, um, um, you know, I grew up in the program where they really followed the fifth tradition. And they were like, you know, you have to be here to welcome newcomers. And you have to do that by working the 12 steps of AA ourselves. And we do that by... Um, following in the principles in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the AA 12 and 12, because that's where the 12 steps of AA are. And um, so by doing that 12, that fourth column inventory and by looking at those things, it, I'm sounding like I knew what I was talking about then, but I didn't know what I was talking about then, and I really don't know what I'm talking about now. But <laughs> but at least I'm, I'm a little bit more aware of my defects. But my first defect that I know now that I had was, um, that I can remember, was kind of isolation um, I always just was a, a, lone, a lone kid. I wasn't um, alone for any reason. I just kind of always had one best friend, and I was also controlling. And so when my best friend wouldn't do what I wanted her to do, uh, she just wasn't my best friend anymore. And then I would move on to another best friend. I lived in the world of Nancy Drew um, and Harriet the Spy. I wanted to be a detective um, or pre al you know, kind of... It's hard to tell the difference. And um, so I was always spying on people, and I was always sure that people were up to no good, and I was always going to be there to witness it, and I was going to be the hero, and I was going to be the savior. And I was, you know, we'd sit outside. My mom would be at the dry cleaner picking up her clothes, and someone would run out really quickly and jump in their car, and I'd take down the license number because I was sure they were, you know, stealing clothes or something. I don't know what I thought they were doing, but... If it was on the news that someone's gabardine suit was missing, I was going to have the criminal. And um, so I just, um, you know, when I was seven years old, this thing was born, and it was my sister. And, you know, I know now that it was another one of my defects came up, and that was competition. And my first, my first competition was with my mom for my dad's affection. And um, especially competing against a female. And I took a lot of that into my life later, competing with females for men's attention. And, uh, you know, it's so funny. (laughs) When they made the announcement about man-to-man, you know, on this flyer, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to take that flyer. (laughs) Um, I'll spy. (laughs) Scope out the cute one and then wait till they, you know, look for the slipper and then kidnap him in the woods. Um... (laughs) But anyway, I um, was always competing with women for men's attention. And then my sister was born, and there was something inside of me. I always believed in God. I always would ask my parents, and actually from the time I was six years old, I went to church by myself. My parents would drop me off at whatever Sunday school my friends were going to. Um, And I was always saying, you know, what is God, and what is, you know, tell me about God, and what does God mean? And I was always, I believed in God, and I believed in the idea of God, and that someone loved me. But, and I would leave the churches every time they'd get to the point where they'd say, and if you do this, you're going to burn in hell, or if you don't do this, you're going to burn in hell. And then I would be like, okay, I'm out of here. And I would tell my parents, no, I'm going on to the next church. So, you know, it talks about in the big book of 
Alcoholics Anonymous that there's that fundamental understanding deep inside of God. You know, that's the great reality within us, like a friend that he's within us. I think I always, I always had that, that feeling as a child that I knew that God was unconditionally loving. But through my bad actions through my life, I pushed that thought further and further away. And as I got more judgmental, my image of God, because of my ego, wound up twisting my image of God around and making my God much more judgmental. And I still, to this day, sometimes suffer from waiting for that other shoe to drop and what's going to happen now, you know. And I really, um, I've had to do step work just on my relationship with God um, because I find new ceilings as, as each year um, goes on. But anyway, um, so I always was, was wondering about God as a child, but um, yet when my sister was born... I didn't believe, I didn't know that this, but I didn't believe that there was an abundant universe and that love, that there was enough, that God was big enough and that love was big enough and there was enough. I just felt like she was going to take some of my love and she was going to take some of my attention. And um, my mom already, my dad worked a lot and um, when he would come home late at night, we would have chicken or something and then he would get steak because he was the dad and and he would come home late at night, and I w- it would be time about time for me to go to bed, and my mom would say I could stay up for 15 minutes, and I'd crawl on my hands and knees like my dog, Daisy, and I'd go around the side of the table, and I'd sit up with my little paws up in the air and stick my tongue out, and I'd pant and beg for a piece of steak. And my dad would pat me on the head, and he would give me a piece of steak like I was our dog, Daisy. And then, you know, I would sit on his lap or talk to him or whatever. And... Um, and I kind of carried that pattern for the rest of my life. I would get involved in relationships with men where I just was always begging for a piece of steak. And as long as they gave me that piece of steak in that few minutes, that could hold me for another, you know, three years. And um, I'd make them pay, but it could hold me for another three years. <laughs> Complaining the whole time. But anyway... Um, so I had some patterns that I set up early in my childhood. And again, I can't say, oh, I did that because it's my parents' fault or this happened because it was that person's fault or whatever. It just, um, it just was what it was. And I was just the kid that I was. And um, anyway, um, when I was, um, I think I was 19, I met, um, I'm sorry, I'm, it's like, really early in the morning my time and I'm <laughs> um, so sleep amongst yourselves um, I when I was 19 I met um, one of my boyfriends and one of my ex-boyfriends and uh, so many men so little principle but um, I I my first boyfriend actually was when I was six years old, and um, and he and I used to play tag on the on the playground, and um, it was the last time a boy chased me, but I can still remember the feeling to this day, and I have definitely chased it to the gates of insanity or death, let me tell you. But um, when I was 19, I went to go see this band, and the all the, I was checking out the band and thinking, oh, well, he's flirting with that girl, and da 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 da. And I saw this one guy, and he was the keyboard player, and he was white faced, and he had red around his eyes, and his head was lolling all over the place. And, you know, and I thought, that's the guy for me. And, <laughs> and I tried to pick him up after the, after the show, and, um, and I asked him if I could buy him a drink. Now, I'm underage at a bar, and I'm asking him if I can buy him a drink and trying to be all sophisticated and everything. And 
um, and he said uh, he didn't drink. And I said, oh, do you do drugs? I mean, I couldn't figure out why he looked so bleary-eyed and, you know, red around the eyes. And he said, well, actually, I'm sober 25 days um, because I smashed my truck into the front of Bank of America on Lancashire, and I, um, I'm afraid the cops are going to come after me, so I got sober. So I knew he didn't have a car and he needed a ride home, so he needed me, so it was perfect. And <laughs> so thus began my, uh, our three-and-a-half-year one-night stand, and that, um, that man was going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would go to AA with him all the time. I went to AA, honestly, um, because I was jealous, because that was another one of my big defects of character. As a matter of fact, when I came in this program, I was vomiting sometimes six and eight times a day without an eating disorder, just from the, you know, they talk about the, the, the green monster. I think that must come from bile or something, because of that feeling in my stomach, I was so insecure and so competitive. When you put insecurity and competition and jealousy together and envy and all of those sick defects of character, I would actually have to vomit from the acid in my stomach. That's how sick I was and how insecure I was. And I would follow this man wherever he went, and I went to AA meetings because I had this idea in my head, and I don't know why, but I thought that all the girls that went to AA meetings were all brawless in undershirts and would sit on the men's laps and wriggle. You know, and when I say that sometimes in front of alcoholics, they're like, that's a good format for a meeting. <laughs> and I don't know where I got that in my mind, but I was sure that the one meeting that I didn't go to, that's what was going to be going on. And, um, but, you know, the magic of the program got me inside because I would sit there and I would weep. I would just weep with these people taking their cakes and they would say, you know, here I am with my wife, and we've gotten back together, and, and here's my precious little baby, and, you know, she's only three months old, and I'm three years sober, and all this stuff, and I would just cry and think, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, because I didn't feel like I had a family. Um, I didn't feel that closeness. I didn't feel like people really, you know, in our family, you know, you don't talk about how long you've been married. You don't talk about your age. You don't talk about anything that I've learned here we're supposed to celebrate. And you don't talk about when people die. I didn't know that, you know, my first grandfather died for a couple of, you know, for a long time after he died. And then my mom told me, like, a few years later that he wasn't even my real grandfather anyway. And then she told me a few years after that, oh, the one I said wasn't really your real grandfather. Well, he wasn't even really your real grandfather either. The one I told you was your real grandfather. So I just, in my family, we just don't talk about anything. And I would go to AA, and people were real. And people loved on each other, and they hugged each other. And it was just the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. But I would go home with all that insecurity and that anger and that, you know, wanting to do anything for a man's attention and that competition and that envy and that um, just needing to the superiority and inferiority because all I had was ego but no self-worth. And so I'd have to put other people down to feel better about myself, like the speaker was talking about last night in a more extreme way. I'd have to kill you, you know, to make me feel better about myself. Um, I was suicidal, not homicidal. But um, anyway, um, so I would go home and I would put this man down and all the time. I would emasculate him. You know, he, this man was just trying to stay sober. I didn't know anything about supporting sobriety. I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon growing separately and yet together in the fellowships and being supportive of each other. I didn't know anything about how to support another human being, really but especially a man. I'd have to put him down all the time. It, it would be if just, you know, random example, but if he said, I'm going to go ask my boss for more money, instead of saying, wow, 
you know, good for you. I'm going to say a prayer for you. Or I'm going to ask God to put his cloak around you and keep you extra safe tomorrow. I can't wait to hear, you know. I would say, you know, good, you should ask for more money because, you know, you've been putting up with all this stuff and you've been working too long and he asked this of you and he asked that of you and you need to do this and you need to do that. You know, by the time we're done with the conversation 20 minutes later, I should say monologue 20 minutes later, he's this big. How good do you think he's going to feel going to ask for that raise? But that's what I did. (laughs) Wow, I heard in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, my controlling was emasculating. My suggesting was, was belittling. My words of encouragement were actual subliminal put-downs to make him feel less than. Because if I could make him feel less than, and I could make him feel desperate and lonely and pathetic, then he would stay with me. He would leave me. Because why would anyone want to stay with me anyway? And then I would swear off of it just like an alcoholic would swear off of booze. And say, boy, you know, when we'd have a huge fight over something, I'd say, I'm never going to do that again. And I'd wake up the next morning before I'd even open my eyes. I'd think, okay, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice. Not today. I'm not. It's like, you know, the alcoholic. I'm just not going to drink today. And before I could even get my eyes all the way open, I'd be reaching for the phone to finish that fight because I would have thrown him out the night before or I would have stormed off the night before or whatever it was. I had to have that. You know, I think we have the same problem as the alcoholic. It's an elbow problem. But instead of picking up the drink for a fix, I'd pick up that phone, you know, and just get back on there, get back on there. And then do the, you know, hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? You know, act like a cold witch and and, um, make him try to twist it around and manipulate. Another one of my defects of character, manipulation, control, all of that stuff just to try to make somebody feel worse about themselves so I could feel better about me. That's not my purpose as a human being. I didn't know that fish have to survive in water, and birds fly, and cows just chew their cud, and that human beings' purpose is not to be loved. That's why I was going against my nature, and that's why I was always uncomfortable, and I always had that angst that alcoholics talk about. I tried drinking. I tried doing all that stuff. It didn't fix the insides. It didn't make me have, take that deep breath that alcoholics talk about when they get that lubrication of that drink. It just didn't work for me. But when I get him to say, you know what, honey? Sometimes I love you so much I can't even see. That would hold me forever, you know, till five minutes later when I needed him to say something else. I needed that double shot and that triple shot. I need more and more and more validation because like Chuck Chamberlain talked about, he would sit in his chair overlooking uh, Laguna, and he would, he would be in Laguna, and he'd overlook the channel of the ocean between Laguna and Catalina. He'd think, he'd think if that ocean were alcohol, it still wouldn't be enough. And that's how I am with attention and validation. When I don't have anything filling that God-spaced shape inside of me, when I don't have a God within me, it doesn't matter how much I get. It doesn't matter if he says, honey, you're beautiful, you're sexy, you're pretty, you're number one. It still wouldn't be enough because he didn't say it in the right way, and he said it after I mentioned it, so it doesn't count anyway. And if he had said it sooner, it would have been genuine. And now he said it, and I could tell he rolled his eyes when he turned his head. And I know you were really thinking of somebody else, and why didn't you just go back to your old girlfriend of 15 years ago anyway since I found that picture in the box, in the attic, behind all the dust where I shouldn't have been snooping anyway, but I know you purposely kept it because I know you don't love me, and I know you love her anyway and you hate being with me and (laughs) 
that's what I write on my internet dating profile. <laughs> that's someone who has no God within them. God was there. I just didn't care about my relationship with him. And that relationship is just like any other relationship. I've got to work on it. I've got to stay in touch. I've got to open my mouth and share. I've got to do the things that I need to do. If God's my employer, what do you do with an employer? You show up. And that means when I open my eyes, I've got to show up every morning for work. My job is just something I do in between. But my real job is when I wake up in the morning. That's when I go on the clock. And God is my employer today, and I have to do what I need to do. And as my employer, he provides what I need. He gives me that paycheck, whatever it is. It may not be what I want. It may have more taxes taken out of it than I want. But he will give me what I need. So anyway, the seed was planted by going to all those AA meetings. And um, to make a long, shortage story uh, shorter, um, I... um, I was so arrogant and smug and self-righteous, like it talks about in our literature, that I wasn't going to go to Al-Anon no matter how much he begged me because I couldn't admit that I was wrong about anything. That was another thing. I was so self-righteous I had to be right about everything. And I sure as heck couldn't be, right, couldn't be wrong about how I was living my life. And if I had to go to Al-Anon, that would mean the whole way, all the tools that I had, all the, the manipulation techniques that I was using, all the... the needing to be better than all those people who wore white shoes after Labor Day. Um, You know, that wasn't going to work anymore. And so I wasn't going to go to that place. And his sponsor said, if she doesn't go to Al-Anon, chances are you guys aren't going to make it because you're going to be growing in one direction and she's not going to be growing and you guys are going to get further and further apart. And the more I emasculated him, the more our relationship just became platonic. And the more it became platonic, the more I needed that validation. And I did what any good person would do like an alcoholic if their choice of alcohol is vodka and they can't get vodka and there's a bottle of scotch there they're going to drink scotch and I couldn't get that validation from him and I went on a a series of really bad actions from the time I was 19 to the time I was 23 when I came to this program and um, um, and it's just part of my story and these are things that I'm not proud of and I'm a lady in recovery today and so it actually kind of seems like a stranger's story to me um, but I'm just going to tell you, tell you what happened. Um, I wound up having affairs with married men. I wound up getting involved with other men who, were, um, who had girlfriends and who were committed because at that point I was so low and so empty and I was already taking such bad actions that I was tearing out bigger and bigger chunks of my soul. And as the hole got more and more gaping, I needed to fix it with more and more. And instead of just having a man to want to be with me, the fact that he wanted to be with me and not with his wife was my double shot. And having, and having him come see me on a weekend and being away from his wife on the weekend was a triple shot. And if he had kids and he was leaving them on a holiday to come see me for an hour, it was a quadruple shot. And, and, um, and then when that wasn't enough, I'd have to be seeing more than one man at a time. And it was just, it was, I was just on a bender, and I couldn't stop. My life was completely unmanageable. I didn't know that it was. I justified, and I had to go from my next validation to my next validation to my next validation because it wasn't enough. And as a result of that, I wound up doing things, putting myself in positions that I shouldn't have been in, in places where I shouldn't have been, Um, and I got raped. I got um, chased down a street by a gang of men and could have been killed or, God knows, gang raped. Um, 
And after I was chased down the street, I wound up in a seedy motel with a guy I had gone to the wrong place with and humiliated myself there. I had um, many uh, pregnancies, and I terminated those pregnancies. And I'm, um, uh, I had to make amends to those little spirits when I came in this program. Um, and through, as the result of working these steps, got to do that. But there's still that space inside that sometimes I look at people, especially now that I'm getting old enough to have older kids and older teenagers and even probably over 20. I can't believe that. I look at these people and I think, oh, my God, that could have been my son or that could have been my daughter. And, um, you know, and because I'm not married and I don't have children, I think, well, maybe I used up my e-tickets. And what maybe, you know, maybe with the damage that I did, that just wasn't my path because my path was to... You know, like it talks about in the promises in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter how far down the scale we'll, we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. And maybe this is my path, is to benefit others. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, so uh, I took a lot of really bad actions, and one of the people I had an affair with was my boss's boss, and I jeopardized my boss. I was a network executive at the time. I had a big, high-paying job. And um, a man had recommended me for the job and had lied about my age. And they thought they were hiring me at 24 and that I was starting work at 25. They were hiring me at 19, and I started work at 20. And I was making multi-million dollar deals and telling all these producers what to do and in charge of all these series and specials. And I thought I was just really hot crap on the outside. And on the inside, I felt like crap. And... Um, and um, and this is when I was involved with this, with this alcoholic man. And I eventually hit such a bottom on everything that I broke up with him. And I broke up with the married boss's boss. And I broke up with the, you know, I broke up with the team. And, um, <laughs> and it was, you know, break up by conference call. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and I quit my job that high-paying job, and my parents couldn't understand why I quit. And I sat at home, and I didn't bathe, and I didn't brush my teeth, and I didn't go out except at night. And um, I got more and more depressed and more and more suicidal. And I didn't remember that I had tried killing myself when I was in high school. I had overdosed on some Valium I had found in my dad's um, medicine cabinet. And um, I didn't remember that till years into the program. Um, and like the speaker, the suicidal speaker was saying last night, you know, uh, for me it was it was um, it was just I didn't want to feel anymore. I just didn't want to feel anymore. And I think I was so caught up in, in self-centered self-centered feeling all the time and taking my emotional temperature all the time that you know suicide is is my extreme self-centeredness. It's all about me, 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 me. And um, so I had already tried killing myself, and um, one day I was feeling my ribs for where I was going to stick the knife because I was going to kill myself again, and I was afraid of slitting my wrist because I thought, you know, they say you have to do it this way or this way, and it was too confusing, and I didn't know what I was going to wear, and I was, <laughs> which sounds really funny, but you know what? I was so fake. I had all these different outfits for my different f- groups of friends, and so I didn't know what to die in. And then I started getting really melodramatic, thinking, that's why people kill themselves nude, because they're saying, this is who I am, and, you know, all that. Anyway, um, so, and the phone rang that day, and I don't know why I picked up the phone um, that day, probably because I was going to kill myself, and um, saved by the bell. And I had stopped picking up the phone months before, um, 
And I picked up the phone, and a friend of mine was calling me, and she had had a boyfriend in the same band who um, had gotten sober, but he was doing it via the value method, and so, which is obviously not sobriety, but she called me and she said, Maria, I'm going to kill myself. I need you to drive me to a mental institution. And on that day, God did for me what he's been doing for me ever since. He took, there were no assets left within me. I had no compassion for this woman. I had no, oh, gee, I'm so sorry, or what's going on. I had nothing. I had no assets left whatsoever. And God did what he always does with me. He uses my flaming defects of character to put me exactly where I need to be. And he used my arrogance and my self-righteousness and everything within me to say, you don't need a mental institution. You need to go to Al-Anon. I will call Al-Anon and we will go to a meeting. (laughs) And that was the 13th of April, 1985. And that's how I got to Al-Anon. And if anyone had called me that day and said, wow, you sound really bad, and I was sitting there feeling my ribs for where I was going to stick the knife. You sound really depressed. You need to go to Al-Anon. I would say, I would have said, I don't need Al-Anon. I'm fine. How dare you? I would have hung up the phone on them. I would have been so arrogant, so smug, and so self-righteous. But God knew that. God knew that. And that girl was my angel. And, and um, we wound up going to Al-Anon, and, and uh, she stayed for a few months, and, and, and then she left, and I wound up um, staying. I, um, I want to skip ahead because I'd like to get to today. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on. But um, suffice it to say, I immediately got a sponsor. Uh, my first meeting, I was, you know, like I said, arrogant, smug, self-righteous, and dominating. And um, I thought I knew it all. I went to 11 meetings a week. Um, because I was so depressed and so suicidal, I was afraid to be alone. And again, I was barely bathing, barely doing anything. I'd roll out of bed, and I'd go to a noon meeting, and then I'd stay at the Alano Club and wait till nighttime, or I'd go out for coffee and wait till nighttime and try to hit three meetings a day on the weekends. I was just really, really in bad shape. And after a few weeks, I would say I started to cry at every meeting, and I did not stop crying for three months. It was like the glacier was melting, and all my arrogance and my self-righteousness was just starting to melt. And, um, And I found a home there, and I found these women who put up with me, and I found this feeling of family that I still have to this day that I love. And I felt like all these women were either my moms or my grandmas or aunts that I never had, and then I met some grandpas that I never had, and and all this stuff. Although I had those people in my life, I didn't have that emotional bond with them. And, and I found that here. And I grew up here. And I heard an AA speaker say one time, and I loved it, he said, you know, you can take all the steps and all the traditions and all the concepts and the books and the slogans and everything, and you can you know, put them all together and work really hard on each of those principles. But when you put all those principles aside, I think what this program is really about is just growing us up. And I thought, wow, that's so true. And since I was 23 years old, that's what this program has been doing for me is, you know, just growing me up. Like the speaker said last night, I don't have to react to things anymore like I'm 7 years old or like I'm 14 years old or at uh, whatever, you know, at some dramatic moment that something happened horrible in my life. I don't have to keep responding to similar situations in the same way. And that's as a direct result of doing the inventory steps through 6 and 7 and cleaning up the wreckage of my past in 8 and 9. And I'm consistently working those steps so that I can 
continue to peel those layers of the onion because I just know so little. It seems like I have these big spiritual experiences and then, you know, it kind of fades and maybe I only hang on to 2% and then I have another spiritual experience and then it fades and I hang on to that 2%. And I'm, I'm one of the slowest learners I know in this program. I'm really slow, but, but I'm a trier. And um, I, I found my first love in program that, of course, you know, he was in AA, I was in Al-Anon, and we were going to trudge the road of happy destiny together, and he was a wonderful speaker and really funny, and, and, um, and I thought that relationship was going to, you know, be the be-all, end-all, and um, that was at three and a half years in the program, and, you know, which... If I went up to you know any three and a half year old in the program now and said, "Will you pick me out a boyfriend?" I would shoot myself in the head. But at the time, you know, I thought who I picked at three and a half years was going to be it. And um, and not that there's anything wrong with him; he's a great guy. But um, what I got to see is I got to do everything in the program that I did out of the program. And I controlled that man, and I emasculated that man one more time, and one more time I pushed another man out of my life to the point where he got so allergic to me I couldn't even hold his hand without leaving welts on his hand. That's how psychosomatically allergic he became to me. Um, that's, that's a nag in high gear. And um, <laughs> turbojet nag. And um, so um, one more time I got to learn how to work these principles of this program and I got to learn how to practice the 12 traditions in my life. You know, that there is only one authority. That unity has to come first in the first tradition, and there's only one authority, and it's not me. And it's also not him. If he wakes up in a bad mood, it doesn't, it's not a reflection of me. You know, and learning how to be self-supporting emotionally and spiritually. I have to do my prayer work. I have to talk to my sponsor to get those emotions out and be emotionally self-supporting. So I'm not dumping my stuff on him. So when I feel bad in the morning, I don't need to pick up the phone and have that drink one more time because you're going to fix me today because I'm too lazy because of another one of my defect sloth. You know, I'm so lazy, I don't want to do the work. I don't want to read my thought for the day and do my prayers and do my meditation. I'd rather pick up the phone and have the alcoholic fix me. You know, talk about a setup. You know, that guy didn't know which, you know, he didn't know if he was coming or going by the time I got through with him. And, um, but um, anyway, so um, I didn't know anything about um, being directly responsible to people we serve. I didn't know anything about those 12 traditions and using them in my personal life. And as a result of that relationship, I got to learn a lot. And we eventually broke up, and um, I had um, other relationships in the program with other alcoholics. Of course, I love alcoholics. Um, I see an alcoholic's twinkle in their eye, and they get me. My heart starts a fluttering. And um, so, um, but a lot of other things started to change in the program. And one of the things that, um, that happened was I kept hearing about people talk about um, that they got to make amends to one or both of their parents who had passed away by writing notes and going to their grave sites and reading the notes. And I would hear those stories and I would cry and I would think, wow, you know, that's really profound and that's really great. And then one day, again, I'm the slowest learner I know, it like dawned on me, like, duh, you know, your parents are still alive, Maria. What, what are you doing, you know? And uh, so I... Um, I decided that I was going to, I had been making living amends to my parents, I had made direct amends to my parents, but I decided to take it up into a high gear because I just figured out I don't want to be one of those people who has to write the note. My parents are alive, I don't want to have to write the note. And I called my parents one day, and I started, started getting my relationship with my parents 
Um, my mom still doesn't particularly like me. I think she, I think I'm growing on her. <laughs> but she's not a big kid person. And since she's always going to see me as a kid, I'm always going to be a kid to her. A little long in the tooth to be a kid, but to her I'm always going to be her kid. And I think, she's, I think she has a fondness for me now. But she did say to me at one point, she actually took me to an intervention where um, they tried to get, my family tried to get me out of Al-Anon, which was interesting. <laughs> What she didn't know was the guy that she hired to do this um, was like 37 years sober in AA. <laughs> so he didn't think it was such a bad idea when I said, okay, well, I'll cut back on my meat. I tell you what, for every night I don't go to a meeting, that'll be a night that you don't drink. And he thought that was a really good idea. We never had to go back. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, I lost my train of thought. But... Um, we, um, anyway, my mom, she had said to me in this session, uh, I've never felt love for or from any human being in my life besides my husband. So I got the idea there that there was that little empty spot inside of me that was always looking for love from my mom and approval from my mom. And that's still there. But I, but I did learn in this program that if you don't get the blessing if you don't get that feeling that you're okay just the way you are when you're born, or if something happens and you have bad experiences happen as a child, and, and you don't get that blessing because something just isn't, isn't all the way there, that the way to get this blessing is to grow up in this program, to work these 12 steps, and to give the blessing to those who didn't give it back to you. And that's what I've been able to do. And I started with little things. I'd call my mom and say, how do you make a stuffed flank steak? I wasn't going to make stuffed flank steak, but I, you know, I remind her that, she, that I loved her stuffed flank steak. And then I uh, would say, boy, I just read the statistic that said 70% of all children in the United States have never seen their parents read a newspaper. And that's why they don't read, because parents don't read in front of their kids. And reading is one of my favorite things to do. And I remember how I used to come home from school and I'd read my Nancy Drew books while you would read on the other side of the bed and you would read your novels. Thank you so much for reading in front of me because you gave me one of my greatest loves in my life. And I'd call her and I'd say, you know, I'm thinking of getting this kind of necklace. How many inches is good? Is it 16 or 18? I didn't even have the money for that kind of necklace. But I knew she liked to talk about stuff like that. And that's how it began years and years before. And about five years ago, I decided, I'm going to call my parents, and I'm going to tell them about this TV show that's starting. And I was really excited about this TV show, and they really like to watch TV, and I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. But um, two things. Um, anyway, uh, so I said to them, I, this TV show, I, I really want to, I saw one episode of it, but I really want to tell you, you know, I really want you guys to see this show. It's really exciting. I tried to explain it to them, and I knew what my dad would say. He would say, um, oh, well, why don't you come over and watch it with us? And so I said, okay. So I went over to their house, and the next, uh, it was on Tuesday nights at that point. Um, I'll go over to your house next Tuesday night. And they said, great, and then we'll make dinner. And I went over there. And for the last five years, we, we watched the show, and my dad said, that's really great, but you're going to have to explain it to me now every week. <laughs> and I said, okay. And for the last five years, I've been going over to my parents' house, and we have dinner. And we watch the TV show together, 
and we say the same things every time. When the hero comes on, we say the same thing, and we do the same thing. And I have these traditions. I've been taught to do the same things here. In meetings, we do the same things. At, you know, at, at conventions, we do the same things. We take the same actions. We, we you know, host speakers the same way, and we, we dress behind the podium the same way, and we do these things that we have these traditions that have been passed down. We're like a tribe. You know, we, we write our drawings on the side of that cave, and, and then the people behind us come, and they follow those drawings, and, and we don't have to keep making our own path. We just follow the path that was set by Bill and Lois so many years ago. We just have to stay on the path. We don't have to slice through with a machete and reinvent the wheel anymore. You know, that's what I was doing early in my program. Now I realize it just... Like the guy said last night, it doesn't matter if you're thinking about making a pizza. If you follow the recipe for an apple pie, you're going to get an apple pie. And I love that. I love that. And so I learned how to do that with my family. And now we have traditions with my family. And there's still a wall that I have there with my dad. I still have a wall there because I know that I love him more than anybody in the world. And so many of my friends' parents have died now because of my age group. I'm so afraid he's going to die that I'm missing out on this time to just drop that one little... And I know it's just like saran wrap. It's not even a wall. It's just still there. But I just have that thing. And I continue to make those living amends, and I continue to make direct amends when I'm wrong, and I continue to be loving and kind and send him loving emails and do all those things, and we have a great relationship. But I can feel it. I can feel it in my heart, and I continue to work on that on a daily basis because I don't want to have to write the note. I'm just really sleepy. (laughs) We actually have a fabulous time when I go over there. (laughs) I go over there sobbing. (laughs) No. Actually, to tell you the truth, we don't always have a fabulous time. I'm just kidding. I don't know how drunk my mom's going to be. I don't know if my dad's going to be drinking or not. (coughs) Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's really uncomfortable. Sometimes my mom is really naggy or she's repeating herself over and over and over again. Sometimes she's really hypercritical. Um, Sometimes she's just waiting for me. You know, there's a trap out and I know whatever I say I'm going to be wrong. You know, sometimes we laugh and have a great time. Sometimes we're laughing and joking around. I don't know what's going to happen when I go over there every week. Except that I know that I'm going to be a good daughter because this program's about my actions. My actions are consistent. They told me to work these traditions just because they're hanging up on the plastic. And it says we try to encourage and understand our alcoholic relatives. I have to do that just because it's on the plastic. That's it. I have to try to encourage and understand my alcoholic relatives, period. Not if she does it my way, if she doesn't look at me that way, if she doesn't curl up her lip and talk about my hair and my weight and my makeup and my dating and my this and my that and my this and my that. It has nothing to do with that. I have to do it because it's on the plastic. That's it. It's on the plastic. I do it. It keeps it really simple. Um, one last thing I'd like to touch on because it's really exciting um, And I heard people talk about their jobs here um, from the podium when I was new in the program. And I know people don't talk about their work, but when I heard people talking about going back to law school when they were older and becoming lawyers and becoming, um, you know, writers and becoming teachers and all that stuff, it was uh, really inspiring for me. And I just never thought I'd have one of those stories. But 
Um, so I am going to talk about my job. I, um, I gave up working in TV after a lot of years, and I decided to try something new. And one more time, those defects of character, a friend of mine called me and he said, we'd like you to write some sketches for this off-Broadway thing in New York. And I had only, you know, as far as live stage, I mean, the only thing I'd written was shows for conventions, you know, <laughs> program shows, and that's the easiest audience in the world. And, um, you know, they come on stage and they get a standing ovation. So <laughs> I was like, Okay, and um, he, he called me in November, and he asked me, and he told me that the thing was going to be happening in February. And in my mind, automatically, I went, okay, February. So now I'll call him at the end of January and say that my Christmas vacation went longer and that I, I got this other job, and I was already, without even realizing it, building up all the excuses and all the things that I was going to do to sabotage myself. Because my sponsor, you know, said to me a million times, Maria, you're one of those people that you run the marathon and then you lay down right before the finish line. And um, so I did that. I did that, but not quite as bad. I waited till January. And I called him and I said, now when was that thing due? And he said, oh, you're okay. It's not till February. And I'm like, oh, holy crap. And, but, uh, but instead of sending him, he said, oh, just send me one or two things. And instead of sending him one or two things, because of that defect of fear and that fear of success and fear of failure and fear of not being perfect and sloth and laziness, right, and competition, what if I'm not as good as the other people and all that other stuff, because my defects of character are not my higher power today, I have a higher power. It's one authority, a loving God, as he expresses himself in our group conscience. And your group, this group consciousness of God has given me this loving higher power that doesn't let me destroy myself anymore and doesn't let me have my defects of character as my higher power anymore. And instead of sending him one or two things, I sent him like 12, 13, 14, 17 things. And they were like, oh my God, this is amazing, blah, 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 blah. This whole thing happened, it came and went. And he called me and he said, listen, I've had this property for a while um, that I've wanted to make into a Broadway musical, and I've been looking for the book writer for the last, like, eight or nine years, and I think you would be the perfect person to write this for me. Do you want to write a Broadway musical? And then this is when I knew he had the wrong number. He said, especially since you're such a self-starter. <laughs> if that's not the program, I don't know what is. <laughs> and I said, Sure. And um, 40 days later, I called him, and I said, okay, I've got the, the, the book done, as they call the script. And, and, uh, and he said, what? What did you get done? And I said, what you asked me to write? And he said, no, 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 no. You're supposed to call me like all the other people in theater. You're supposed to call me like a year from now and say, oh, I didn't get around to it. What was it again? And I'm not sure. And I said, no, you asked me to do it, so I did it. Because we are allowed to hire outside workers, like it says in the traditions, and then we are directly responsible to those we serve. And although he didn't pay me any money, he asked me to do it. I made a commitment, and I was directly responsible, and I did it. And I showed up. And all this stuff started happening, which I don't have the time to tell you, but it was basically all a God thing. And one of the things that happened in the middle of this was that I actually I had discovered a new ceiling on my God and how conditionally loving I thought he was and I thought my life has been so good it can't possibly get any better and actually it was Vinoy who said you know what you need to take the steps again just on your relationship with God and I was able to admit that I was powerless over my old idea of God and that my life was going to continue to be unmanageable if I hung on to that that 
uh, small God. And that I needed to be restored to sanity to think in terms of a God who was big enough, big enough to handle the good in my life. I knew my God was big enough to handle the bad because I had been very ill in program. I had almost died um, and had been saved. I then found they found another mass in my neck, and people had prayed for me all over the country, and that had disappeared. And the doctors were saying, we, we looked on the MRI. Where did the mask go? We don't know what happened to it. And I'm thinking, I know what happened to it. And... Um, so I've had these experiences that I know that God is big enough to handle the bad, and I had my faith there, but I wasn't sure that God was hand, big enough to handle more good for me. And um, anyway, so I took those steps, and as a result of that, this guy came into my life out of the blue who was actually, it's just a long story, but he said, by the way, I've given up the movie business, and I'm doing Broadway musicals. And I said, really? I've got one. Can we have a meeting when you're in L.A.? He said, yeah, by the way, I'm going to be there in four days. Let's meet. And I said, okay. And we did, and my partner said, oh, well, he'll get back to you in six months and let you know if they're interested or not. The be- and I said, but what's the best thing that can happen? He said, what's, you, what's with you all the time, and what's the best thing that can happen? I said, I just want to know what the best thing is. Because I like to pray about that, and if it's God's will that the best thing happens, great. You know, I've been told the best is yet to come in this program, and I like to visualize the best now. I'm not the negative suicidal mope that I was when I came in here. And um, so he said, well, the best thing that can happen is he stands up at the end of the meeting and says, we want to do the show. And I said, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on that then. And at the end of that meeting, that man stood up, shook my hand, and said, we want to do the show. And uh, we went into development on that show. It was very exciting. We had a lot of readings in New York. Um, and Jim and Virginia flew all the way to New York just to come to one of the readings, which was amazing. And a bunch of people from program came from L.A. And um, then we got stuck in all these rights things and all this other stuff happened. And, and it all exploded. It all got shut down. And I thought, well, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? But I've been taught to look for where God is. And my partner came to me and he said, listen. I've been working on this other project for 12 years. We've had all these other writers, and we haven't been able to get it going, but I have all the music already done. He writes the music and lyrics, and I write the book. And, uh, and he said, would you like to take a pass at this? You need to talk to this producer and see if he's willing to hire you. And his name is so-and-so, and I talked to this producer, and this is a guy who produced Phantom of the Opera and Cats and Jesus Christ Superstar album and all these big things, and he wanted this show to become his next big musical, and he told me he was going to hire me. And I was like, you have got to be kidding. (laughs) And meanwhile, our first producer on this other project, it all got so stopped because that first producer died. And we had to kind of start all over, and it was this whole other thing. And if that hadn't all happened, you know, not the man dying, you know, had nothing to do with that, you know. Um, But, but, I'm just saying we wound up working on this other project. Subsequently, in the last month, that producer has also died. But I didn't do it. <laughs> and I have an alibi. And, um, but anyway, um, we've now had, uh, we had a reading on that show, and one of the people who came was from Texas, this man from Houston. And he came and he said, we want you to do your pre-Broadway run at our theater in Houston um, next year, so a year from now, our show is going to be opening in Houston uh, on its way to Broadway. Um, and I never, 
And God knows this could explode too. We've had some really horrible times. I've been under so much stress the last few weeks. It's been really, really bad. And I just keep asking to find where God is in everything. Everything that seems seemingly bad, I just keep saying, God, just please show me where you are in this. Please show me where you are. And even if I'm sobbing and hearing really bad news, or if I'm, you know, I'm always an insomniac anyway, but even if I have really bad insomnia and I'm under that stress, I just keep asking God to show me where he is in all this. And everything I've done in my career, everything I'm doing with my parents, everything I do with my friends, everything I do in this whole world is a direct result of what you have taught me to do in this program. It started just by picking up the cups, and suddenly I'm able to go be of service out there. I don't know what picking up styrofoam cups has to do with being of service out there. I don't know how I got from there to there, but all I know is I'm being of service out there, and I still get to pick up styrofoam cups. And I'm so honored that I get to pick up the cups people like you because you've absolutely given me a life. Thank you so much. One big hand once again for Maria and Robert. And Cindy Kirkenoff, come on down and see this fine lady right over here. We are on a break for 15 minutes. Boy, I love the pros. It's right at 1030 up here on my watch. Yeah, all right. I'm Rick to 1045, and we'll be back with more speakers. Thank you.